She started out wanting the water and ended up with the whole building. The story of something you'll find in hot springs that you won't find anywhere else in America. A brewery in a national park. Our visit with Superior Bathhouse Brewery's Rose Schweikart plus fun things to do in hot springs all ahead on our Hot Springs This Week podcast. Hot Springs This Week. A look at things to do and people to meet in hot springs. America's first resort. Welcome to Episode 3. I'm Neil Gladner. We'll start with a look at our calendar, including a preview of some 4th of July activities you and your family can enjoy, and we'll wrap up with a quick look at the lake and river information. But in between, a fun discussion with Rose Schweikart, who, as you'll hear, says her business has surpassed her expectations a lot. But first, Jennifer Bailey of our sister station, 105.9 KLAZ, joins me for our regular look at things to do coming up here in Hot Springs. It's summer in Hot Springs, always something to do, and I love it. The Hot Springs Fishing Challenge is still going on at this time. Big Al has not been caught yet. He's worth 15 grand, plus several other tagged fish that are still out there waiting to be caught that are worth good money. Well, they are catching them left and right, aren't they? Hey, out at Garvin Gardens, if you like to take pictures, they do a series of summer photo walks. So there's different classes at different times. You'll want to talk to them about when. But for instance, there's one about taking wildflowers. There's one about taking pictures of waterfalls. There's one that is about dusk and sunset pictures. And some of them are for those of you with really big, expensive cameras. And some of those are just if you have a smartphone with a decent camera. There's also movies at the market coming up. I absolutely love this for families, especially. Mary Poppins Returns is coming up on June 27th. And then on July 11th, Ralph Breaks the Internet, which is a great movie. They open up at 530 at the Farmer's Market. You can set up your picnic, set up your spot, and then they show the movie at dark. And remember, don't bring any glass bottles. Yeah, you can bring picnic stuff. Yes. But but no bottles. Uh, out at Mid-America Museum through the summer different science camps now they've got dinosaurs all summer so um i talked to them on the radio the other day and it's kind of like from not the dinosaurs but the people from the museum but they're going all the way from dinosaurs to outer space of course it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this summer so there's if your kids love anything to do with space check out mid-america museum different space camps each week and then we've also got of course friday june 28th the gallery walk downtown yeah, that's if you if you've never done it, that's fun. You just stroll from gallery to gallery and some of them have wine or cheese or things of that nature and every so often you see something that is hanging on their wall you think needs to be hanging on your wall. <laughs> Well, and speaking of paying for things, we've got some fantastic uh, events that you do need to pay for, but they are well worth it. Saturday, June 29th, the Newsboys are performing at Magic Springs. Now, of course, if you pay for your ticket or you have a season pass to Magic Springs, the concert series is absolutely free. Now, there's lots of live theater in town, several choices at the Hot Springs Bathhouse Dinner Theater, Maxwell Blade, Magic and Illusion at the Malco every night except Sunday. You can contact those theaters for all their showtimes and prices. And this sounds like just this just sounds like something I need to get involved in. Yes, it does. Sunday, June 30th at the Avenue in the Waters Hotel. It's an art and wine dinner. Local artist and gallery owner John Fagenkrantz is the featured artist. He's going to give a talk and there's going to be a unique menu for the night as well. A five 
course dinner at the Waters, only seventy-five dollars per person. That's an amazing deal for an amazing night. And that includes wine pairings. Ooh. Yeah. So you know that sounds like great fun. Especially I pair if you my like wine it. with my meals by just saying wine meal, and I'm happy. Well, that's because you're just this side of a sommelier. <laughs> And then let's look ahead to 4th of July. Lots of stuff having to do with fireworks. Of course, on the 4th of July, the big one's on Lake Hamilton down on 7 South. Brought to you by Visit Hot Springs. That will go about 9.15, by the 4th of July. Will be will be dark, and the music is synced on our country station, US 97. So if you're out and about and want to listen, 97.5 to hear music synced to the fireworks. Also on the 4th, there's a similar fireworks up at Mountain Harbor Resort on Lake Washita. And they have events starting at 8.30 that morning. They have a parade, a flag raising, all kinds of fun stuff out at Mountain Harbor Resort on the 4th. Also on the 4th, downtown Hot Springs at Arlington Park, the Friends of the National Park are putting on an old-fashioned picnic. Uh, You can buy a sandwich, cold drinks. If you want to come in, it's free. There's things you can buy. All the money there being raised to help restoration of the remaining bathhouse. Uh, let's see, July 3rd is Spa Blast out at Oaklawn. It's been years since they've had Lee Greenwood, and he's coming back. So, And that's free. Uh, they open the gates at 530, and you can go in, and they do a great fireworks display. Of course, that's on the 3rd and on the 5th, Jen. They have fireworks at Magic Springs. The fireworks are free, and you can hear the music on one of our sister radio stations, Cool 101.5, again, about 9.15-ish. And you can you don't have to go up to the park. Lots of folks will be along the, the frontage road at, on Highway 70 that goes past the park, where you can go up into the parking lot without going into the park to enjoy those fireworks. Fireworks for three days in a row. I'm digging that. I absolutely love it. Thanks, Jennifer. Wherever you're listening, thank you. We're on iTunes, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Public Radio, and others. So a blatant self-promotion request. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. If you have a suggestion, we'd love to hear from you with your ideas for future guests. And please leave us a review as well. You can contact us on Twitter at HSThisWeek. Now our discussion with Rose Schweikart of the Superior Bathhouse Brewery. So start, Rose, with the story of how you got into the brewery business in an old bathhouse. Well, I've always been a beer fanatic, probably since college. Um, I went to music school. I play the tuba. So, <laughs> and yeah, so tuba players are pretty notorious for loving beer. Who knew? Well, there's that old joke, um, a bunch of tuba players walk past a bar. The punchline is, well, no, they didn't. So, yeah, I was, let's see, I went to music school, and I was in Manchester, England, where I spent a year studying tuba. And that leads to opening a brewery how? Well, I'm getting there. So okay. um, I feel like living in England is where I really fell in love with all the different beer from around the world. And when I moved back to the U.S., I had met my um, my then future, now former husband, and uh, he was a home brewer. Okay. So he taught me how to brew beer in Springfield, Illinois. And so that's that's where you started the love of making beer? Yeah, the love of making beer kind of started as a home hobby. Nothing beats making, you know, making five gallons of beer and having it on tap at your house. It sure did. So 2011, I'm on my way to Hot Springs, and I, of course, went to Google to find where the breweries were. So I could 
uh, taste some of the local beer during a visit. Boy, you really like beer. I really like beer. Well, when you're a home brewer and you're going to a new place, you have to scope out the breweries. So to my shock, there were zero breweries in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So you say to yourself, ooh, that's opportunity. I said, yeah, that's an opportunity, especially considering that we have this famous hot uh, thermal spring water that you can drink, which is, you know, kind of a very rare in the world. Sure. So you can open it anywhere. It's a big city in terms of when, when there is no competition, you can put it down anywhere to get started. How, what was the, the thing that led you to want to do it in the national park in an old bathhouse? Well, it's kind of a... It certainly wasn't going to be the simplest way to do it. No, it was probably the least simple way to do it. Um, It's kind of a crazy story. I opened up my email one day and shot an email out to Josie Fernandez, the superintendent, in 2011. And I said, can I brew beer using the thermal spring water? A couple hours later, I got a reply that said, yes, let me show you the superior bathhouse. The boring part of the story is that um, to use to do something like that with the thermal water, the activity has to occur in the park. So that's kind of the, the technicality. But, um, you know, a brewery has to have a beautiful building to exist in. Sure. And, you know, I was really happy to find out that these former bathhouses were, in fact, available for lease by uh, private businesses. So it just seemed like kind of a lucky coincidence when Josie shows you the superior, do you instantly fall in love with it, or do you look at it and go, ugh? Um, I would say I definitely fell in love with it. I had never even been to Hot Springs before, and within 24 hours of my first trip to Hot Springs, I was you know, walking into this um, majestic building and just couldn't really believe that it was possible to maybe put a brewery in this building. I'm one of those people who can see an old building and see a lot of potential in it. So when you're walking through it, Rose, do you do you instantly see, okay, I'll put tables here, this will be the tasting room, this will be the room where we brew? I mean, do you, do you start seeing it in your mind right away? I think a building kind of tells you how to use it often, and that was definitely the case with the Superior. I could picture, you know, the original marble check-in desk being a bar. That's a natural one. And there's these wonderful windows that um, overlook Central Avenue and the Arlington Lawn. So it made sense to put little chairs and tables right you know, along the windows so people could have a beer and look out while they sit there. And then just you know, the fact that it was a bathhouse meant there are areas that were built for bathing and had bathtubs in them and you know, marble stalls. So obviously that's the room that needed to have the brewery in it. If there used to be people soaking in tubs, that's where the brewing equipment should go. So it kind of, you know, it kind of informed a lot of its own layout. So, so you were interested instantly in brewing, brewing with the, the natural occurring hot springs water. I don't know anything about brewing beer, so does that water lend itself well to making beer? Is, is that part of the secret, or is it just a novelty? Oh, it's more than a novelty. Um, if you think about it, beer is about 95% water. So we're looking at the main ingredient of the beer uh, one of the reasons that there are different beer styles from different areas of the world is because the water chemistry in different areas is is different and lends itself to different styles. So the you know the mineral content of certain water definitely leads to water that's good or or not good for making beer. So do you start testing the water right away? Is that an early step to to find out what the compounds or the elements of that water turn out to be? Well, it's funny. Um, the park actually publishes that information 
on on their website. It's still there. You can go to Hot Springs National Park's website. They have an FAQ page, and you can have the water chemistry right there. So, being a you know dutiful home brewer, I plugged that into you know some water chemistry tools that we have available to us, and I learned that hey, this water chemically is pretty good for brewing beer. So our hot spring water is actually very similar to the water in uh, Cologne, Germany, or Dusseldorf aquifer region, which is why we make a Kolsch. Kolsch means Cologne, Germany. Tell me what a Kolsch beer is compared to a more standard over-the-counter kind of beer from a, from a, a mega brewery. Well, sure. Um, well, we make you know, 18 different kinds of beer, but, you know, a Kolsch is a great example because it's it's technically an ale, but it's a German style, so it's lower in hops, it's light-bodied and light in color, so it's kind of a little bit of a beefier version of what you might think of as a classic lager or pilsner. So from the time in 2011, Josie, Josie Fernandez, the then superintendent of the park, walks you through the building, you're saying to yourself, this is it. I, I, this is where I want to put my brewery in Hot Springs. How long is it before you open? And, and take? I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine what it's like to try and get that done through the National Park Service. Yeah, it was about a two-year process from my initial visit to signing the lease. Uh, I, I was actually very surprised and very lucky to find out that Hot Springs National Park is um, kind of has an unprecedented uh program within the National Park Service for leasing historic properties. They yeah, had put the, together the private public mm-hmm. partnership there is just phenomenal really when you when you think about what they've accomplished on Bathhouse Row. Well absolutely and that was out of necessity. They had to put together a program through which people like me had, you know, a um a, a pathway to apply for and sign a lease. So they literally release an RFP. It's a request for proposals. And then people like me could um, apply or can present a proposal to the park. Uh, it consisted of a business plan. I had to show that I could had or could obtain the financing to make it happen. Uh, I had to prove that, you know, I had the the business knowledge or the team put together to execute my plan. And also it was a lot like a, it was like writing a, um, a dissertation or a kind of a, um, what's the word, a persuasive essay uh, I had to prove to the park that my idea was going to be beneficial to the park and to the visitors and, you know, using the water. It was kind of like, you know, kind of a feels feelsy thing. I had to say, this is why this is a good fit for Hot Springs National Park. Did it surprise you that the National Park Service was okay with you making beer in the National Park? Well, of course, I wondered when I sent that original, uh, sure. original email if that was even a possibility. But I think... Um, I think there was some history here in Hot Springs. There were a few uh, proposals, I know of at least two attempts to put a brewery into the Superior. Around uh, 1995 there was one, and around 2000 there was another one. So the park had already had the idea, but that was before they put together this proposal system. So, you know, even so people who had had these ideas in the past weren't really able to get all the way through to using the building because there just simply wasn't a way to do it. So for for 
people listening to us who have never been to Hot Springs, Bathhouse Row on the uh, where all the bathhouses are, and as you go north on Bathhouse Row, yours is the last establishment there before you get to a, a big park area called Arlington Park. The one thing there is nothing of on your side of the street is parking. So I can imagine from the time they gave you the keys until you were able to open the door, construction must have presented, or renovation, really not construction, must have presented some unique hurdles in terms of getting equipment in there and all of that. So how did that go? How did you get that done? Well, I've... I consider myself to be sort of a logistics uh, expert since I've been in the Superior Bathhouse. Uh, You're right, we have no parking. Um, The closest loading zone is about 50 yards to the south of the building. That's our nearest curb cut, and access to our building is via a sidewalk, a very public sidewalk. I have no loading dock. There's no back entrance, no alley. (laughs) So, yeah, basically my entire life um, back during construction, and to this day, is... uh, heavily involved in trying to figure out when the next delivery is coming, what crew is coming, uh, what kind of vehicle are we driving, do we have a trailer, you know, obtaining advanced permission to get it down the sidewalk, can I park on the sidewalk for a few hours, Um, what if we have a trailer-mounted welding rig, for example, or maybe a, you know, um, gasoline hydraulic, uh, hydraulic generator, etc. So, uh, so, long story short, we, we made it we made it work, but how long did it take from the time you not from the time you got the keys, but mm-hmm. from the time you actually started the renovation work until you opened? How long a period of time was that? Well, there was a lot of um, necessity to open quickly because I had spent two years doing paperwork, not making money. Uh, so it was a huge priority of mine to open the doors in whatever capacity possible as soon as possible. So while we signed our lease in March of 2013, uh, we threw together a pretty quick interim stage one to the business and opened our doors on, believe it or not, July 12th, 2013. That's fast. So in four months, we built a commercial kitchen, walk-in coolers, put the bar together, and kind of started to wing it at that point back to rose in a moment the podcast made possible in part by one of our partners visit hot springs hot springs is a tremendous place to visit you can get a ton of information on their website at hotsprings.org when you go there you'll find a link for a free vacation planning guide you'll find special deals in the menu bar across the top a calendar of events well into the future great place to hold a convention by the way now all of that's at hotsprings.org now, back to our discussion with Rose Schweikart of the Superior Bathhouse Brewery. Now, beyond brewing beer, you serve food as well, uh, sandwiches and salads and, and uh, hors d'oeuvres and things of that nature. Was mm-hmm. that part of the original plan? Did the Park Service require you to have food to go with the beer? What what led to the, de- the decision to also have a food menu? Well, it's kind of interesting, and I talk about this with my staff every day. My intention was to open a brewery that served food, but very quickly into kind of putting putting the plan together in the final moments, I realized that this was going to be a restaurant that had a brewery, <laughs> um, which is a different mindset. But um, one part of the reason was kind of a legal situation, not the park, but... Um, ABC, Arkansas Alcohol Beverage, uh, requires that if you're going to serve any beer above 
um, I think it's 5.3% ABV. Uh, you have to serve full full meals. That's alcohol by volume. Al- alcohol by volume, yep. So basically anything beefier than your classic Budweiser is going to be, you, you need to be serving food. Now at the time, um, back at the time, uh, our brewery wasn't built yet. And we'll get into that in a minute. But I opened with 18 taps of guest craft beers, and we wanted the good stuff. So, yeah, we have some lighter things, but also sometimes there are, um, you know, beers that are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 percent alcohol by volume. And I wanted to make sure we could serve those craft beers, hence the the restaurant. So do you also have a background in food service, or was that a giant education for you? That was a trial by fire, for <laughs> sure. I've, I had never worked or owned a restaurant before. Um, so that was interesting. I had to depend a lot on some very enthusiastic staff to build build a build a restaurant. Yeah. So so who do you get to design the menu? How do you learn food costs? I mean, how do you do all the things if you've never been in that business? That mm-hmm. I've got to think that had to be scary. It was scary. I had done a lot of kind of reading and understanding about business planning, so I felt pretty comfortable understanding that you know no matter what kind of widget you're selling, you need to understand what the price is, what you're going to purchase it for, that kind of thing. So I could I could see that. Um, what was very interesting to me as far as opening a commercial kitchen was the just the process of, okay, here's the menu, and that's fine. And you can make, here's a recipe, that's fine. So we need these ingredients, but it's a whole thing with ordering schedule, prep schedule, uh, et cetera. Like, how, you know, how much to make, what happens if we run out, what if we make too much, what if... You know, some gets burned or dropped or, you know, yeah, it's... you, you got to maintain a certain... I've never been in the restaurant business, but I know right. from talking to restaurant owners, you've got to maintain a certain food cost. You only want to have a certain amount of actual food that hopefully you can use in multiple dishes so that you don't have to have 14 ingredients for everything on the menu. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's a And it's an ongoing day-to-day project. That That job is never, ever done. So do you personally spend more time on the brewing of beer or on overseeing kitchen activities now? Oh, I don't go up there, but uh, <laughs> to the kitchen. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, well, I would say more overseeing the brewing, but actually lately, um, you know, the business has grown to the extent that I, I see myself in more of a CEO role at this point, which is, you know, as much as I love cleaning toilets and changing beer kegs, I'm very, very happy to have, um, you know, assembled a kind of a crack team of awesome management that allows me to kind of step up and look at the big picture of everything, financial work and, you know, ordering, building maintenance, So that kind of stuff. Would you say you have 18 beers right now? I have 18 beers. Are all of those made there? Absolutely. Every single one is made at the Superior. So walk me through the Not the recipe, but the formula for deciding what kinds of beers you're going to make when. And how many of them are are year-round brews and how many of them come and go with seasons? Sure. Well, beer, I always like to, you know, go back to my tuba playing days. Making beer is like making music, and it's an artistic process. And as the artist, you have to have have a vision in your head of what type of product you want to produce and how you're going to do that. So with that kind of approach to brewing beer, uh, we had to look at, okay, if we've, we've 18 taps, but more importantly, we have X number of tanks and X number of kegs. 
So it's a constant, um, constant scheduling project to say, you know, first we have to look at what kind of core beers we want to have. You know, we're in a national park. We have walk-in visitors all the time. I need to make sure uh, commercially that I have a range of beers that are going to appeal to, you know, the Bud Light drinker or the nerdiest craft beer fan there is. So, you know, there's a point where you can kind of determine at least 10, you know, 10 beers that are going to be core beers. You know, we make our blonde ale, our Kolsch, pale ale, a couple IPAs, a wheat, um, a fruit beer, a stout, a bock, an Irish red. Okay, those are our year-round beers, maybe 10 or 11. Okay. But then the fun part starts, which is uh, then we get to plug in seasonals. So it's traditional to make an Oktoberfest-style beer in, you know, September or October. And then around the holidays, I'd like to make maybe a double chocolate stout or something spiced, like a Christmas beer. Then what comes around the horn next is maybe Valentine's Day. There's a chocolate beer. Or uh, St. Patrick's Day, of course, we'll make an Irish stout, Irish red. Then summer comes, we'll make a, you know, a light beer, maybe a watermelon goes or something like that. So then the seasonals so, come in to play. Let's talk about the one for Oktoberfest. We're, yeah. we're having this discussion in the middle of June. Right. When will you start ordering what you need to make an Oktoberfest-style beer for September? Well, today's what, June 20th, June 18th? Um, the pallet of grain came today to make the Oktoberfest beer. Uh, we will brew it probably... First week of July, maybe the last week of June. Oktoberfest beer is a lager, and that's one of our longer styles. So we need at least two months to knock that out. So if I want my fall beer available on September 1, I need to make it on July 1. And and how long does it take to make, and then how long do you have to store it before you're ready for it to come through the tap? Sure. Well, you know, the brewing process is we sort of have one one day that's the active, we call it brew day. So that's the day we take the grains, add them to this thermal water, bring it to a boil, add the ingredients, whatever, send it over to what's called a fermentation tank. That's where it gets to hang out and the magic happens. We add the yeast, and the yeast turn basically the grain soup that we made into beer. So thank you, yeast, for making <laughs> beer. Uh, we just provide them uh, their dinner, is essentially. But So we're in the fermentation tank. We have our yeast going to town and uh well our fastest styles we can turn around maybe eight days that's a classic ale um normal alcohol level so like our our maddens could be as quick as a 10-day beer um something that is a lager or a higher alcohol beer that takes longer for the yeast to process uh, the sugars that we're feeding them and it also takes longer for certain flavors to develop a lot of beers benefit from an extended aging time. So, like I just said, Oktoberfest takes two months, about eight weeks to make. Um, that's because it's a slower-acting yeast, and there are certain flavors we need to develop over time. Um, I have some beers where I have to sit for a year. So I have a couple tanks in reserve that we can make make a beer, and this, this yeast takes so long to develop its characteristic flavors that we throw it in the back for, for a, wait, a whole year. Till we can taste that one, so it just it depends on depends on the recipe. Superior Bathhouse and Brewery got off to, at least from an outsider's perspective, a really fast start. There was, craft beers were new to Hot Springs when you got started. Mm -hmm. You're in a national park, the first to ever do that. 
from the outside looked like he got real successful real fast faster than you thought yes uh, I was shocked at even our first year numbers they exceeded my 10-year projection which meant we were scrambling to figure it out on the fly we did not get a nice gentle breaking in period but um, I'm really happy to say this will be our sixth anniversary next month and uh, every every year has been up from the previous year I just keep thinking surely we've hit you know hit a plateau surely this is the maximum we can sell in a year and keeps keeps getting better so yes i've been very fortunate very happy if i look at the website i mean the first thing you see on the website on top is that it's the first uh beer made in a national park so that's a pretty novel thing probably surprises a lot of people do you get calls from other brewers in other parts of the country that now want to learn from what you did and is it happening anywhere else that you know of now that you've kind of blazed that path um, I'm positive that we're the only brewery in a U.S. national park because um, the national park has basically health inspectors who regulate us, and they've they've told me that we're the only brewery. There is another winery somewhere in a national park. Uh, there are some breweries that are in towns that are near national parks. But again, the reason I was in a national park is because I wanted to use the thermal spring water. And that's you know what's been very interesting about this is to me— I mean, I live and breathe this 24 hours a day. So to me, we're in a bathhouse and we use the spring water. And that's the point of what I'm doing is to make beer with thermal spring water. But every single day, I'm just surprised to be answering that question to people, locals who are my friends. It's still clicking for people that we make beer with the hot spring water. So that's been, I feel like we've told the story in a hundred different ways and i'm still trying to explain that (laughs) yes we make beer with hot spring water maybe that's so seems so out in left field that it's you know tough sell down down bathhouse row a little bit there are some actual bath houses Mm -hmm. and as i recall the people i've talked to and it's a couple of years ago that spring water is so hot they actually have to cool it before they can use it Mm -hmm. you want it hot Exactly. The first step in making beer is heating up three to 400 gallons worth of water. I need it to be about 168 in the morning, and it comes to me about 140, 142. So I get a good head start heating my water, yeah. So that must probably save you a little bit of money on heating. Absolutely. Money, or more importantly, time. The currency of brewing is pretty much time. So, you know, if I can shave an hour off the morning, that... That gets me an hour ahead. And how do you source the other the hops, and or if you use barley or or whatever else you're using, depending on the kind of beer you're making, how do you source that? Well, uh, beer is made usually with malted barley or malted wheat, so uh, it's a grain, it's a commodity. Sure. Um, there are so many breweries in the world, in the country, that there are nationwide brewery distributors. So. Um, we actually source our materials from a couple different companies, but they, they warehouse in Houston. And believe it or not, it's like Amazon Prime of brewing ingredients. Uh, we placed an order uh, yesterday, and the pallet came today. So it's modern. We're not in the field um, uh, with our scythes harvesting wheat, that's for sure. No, but I was wondering, really, if you were if you were out at farms looking at the, the raw materials yourself, will you trust these suppliers enough that they know exactly what you want? 
Yeah, we, we have to trust the suppliers. I mean, huge, huge breweries have their own farms, and they, they have their own supply chain, very vertical, you know, vertical supply chains like Budweiser, for example. I'm not Budweiser. So, so you said earlier in our discussion that at the end of the first year, you'd already beaten your 10-year <laughs> projection. So sometimes in business, they talk about being big, hairy, audacious goals. Is there one sitting out there now as you start thinking, okay, in a couple of years, I want Superior Bathhouse to be if you, in the big dream? I mean, my, you know, my biggest goal is to kind of perfect what we're doing. I, I know I'm, I'm like dodging your question, but you know, I've got a few more, a few more tricks up my sleeve with Superior. Uh, we're getting ready to build a large outdoor patio. Um, those of you who know me well know I've been saying that every single year for I six was years. Say it's not the first time I've heard that. Yes, I'm going to build that patio this year, guys, for real. But um, you know that kind of thing. I I would really like to kind of take everything to its you know it, to its extreme within the boundaries of what I can do right now. And then I definitely have some future goals to increase our production in other ways, like maybe you know maybe utilizing an extra facility or, um, you know, something. I don't do, know. Do you have room there to put the patio right there, or is that something you have to get with the National Park Service to go out into the Arlington Lawn? Is that where it would be? It would be on the Arlington Lawn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you know when you read about how to negotiate, sometimes you hear that you should ask for more than you more than you want, assuming that the other party will maybe meet you halfway. Right. So when I made my proposal for the building, I said, and I would like 50 feet of the Arlington Lawn, expecting them to say, well, you can have this corner, you know. But no, I actually uh, have 50 feet of the Arlington Lawn within my leasehold boundary. Um, okay. So I actually have... It's almost halfway to uh, where the cooling station is on the side of the building, so um, I don't have to renegotiate that. However, um, of course, the process of designing and building it is a big negotiation process, and that's what's taken literally years. So two days from now, um, the National Park's landscape architect is coming down from Michigan to meet with me on site about some of the finalized details. So it sounds like it's actually going to happen. Well, yeah, well, you know. So I like to wrap up these discussions with a couple of questions about hot springs for someone who does business in hot springs. So after someone has come and they've eaten at the Superior Bathhouse already, a friend who's visiting, where else do you want to make sure they go in hot springs? Wow, I love um, I love when people come to visit because I get to play tourist a little bit myself. Um, weather permitting, I can't resist a good hike, of course, or you know, just go for a walk and go downtown shopping. Um, if it's in the spring, I like to take people out to Oaklawn. That's fun. If you've never been to a live horse race, as I had never been before I came here, that's a good time, of course. Good day at Oaklawn. Um, I like to send people to the lakes, you know, out to go hop in the lake or maybe go fish. Amongst competitors, your favorite restaurants in Hot Springs? I, I eat out a lot, yeah. I'd love to go to um, Squeezebox. Our, my dear friends Zach and Cheryl opened a brewery there, and their pizza's amazing. Uh, Steinhouse Keller is a favorite of mine. Maybe that's the tuba player thing, but <laughs> of course. Uh, DeLuca's, I guess I have a pizza a pizza fetish. Um, gosh, I love to go to Rock, Rockies. Okay, pizza, more pizza. Um, okay, so, I don't well, know, everywhere. Pizza and beer go together, so yeah. I guess that's really not that surprising. Yeah. And then coming back to the Superior Bathhouse, mm-hmm. if you're coming for lunch or for dinner, mm-hmm. what's the must-have on the menu in your mind? 
Yeah, well, our must-have is definitely our giant pretzel um, dipped in cheese sauce, so you can soak up your beer. As far as an entree, I mean, I just love a classic Reuben or our buffalo chicken sandwich is great. And you get some great salads, which we wouldn't expect at a brewery. Yeah, salads are good. You know, it was important to me to make a lot of different people happy with our menu, so we can handle a lot of dietary needs, vegetarians, gluten-free people. I mean, you know, a lot of people have different food restrictions and you know it's easy to it's easy to meet those things with whole food like you know like a good salad made with locally locally grown greens and your last question personal favorite beer at superior yeah i I know i'm asking you to pick amongst your 18 children Well, I, i never have a straight question or answer for you um normally my answer to that is the latest one we tapped because i love to try all the cool stuff the guys are making but my favorite of all time, probably our rule number one. Uh, it's a double IPA, so it's really hoppy, kind of sweet, very high alcohol. Uh, we serve it in a small glass because it's so much, but it's over the top, and it's pretty delicious. My thanks to Rose. Now let's switch gears. Obviously, water recreation, a big part of enjoying hot springs for many people. So every week we visit with Kimberly Bogart from Entergy, Arkansas, about the lakes and the flows on the Washita River. And as you'll hear, on a recent float trip, she spotted some eagles over the river. Kimberly, one of the things that people always want to know about is flows on the Washita River below Remmel Dam. So what can you project about that? So this week, the flows that you're going to be seeing are actually really great for recreating on the Washita River. We're looking at doing recreational flows, which again are about 4,000 CFS from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day this week. So if you want to float the Washita and you're new to doing that, what does that mean in terms of pace of the river? So the pace of the river is... I I call it very relaxing. There is a really nice small flow that you don't really have to work at all to get yourself down the river. Uh, You might want to paddle to kind of push yourself back into the channel, but it's a really nice relaxing float. Um, It gives you a chance to be able to get off on the couple of gravel bars that show up and hang out for a little while. But it takes, you know, if you stop a couple of times, you can go from Rimmel Dam down to the Whitewater Park in Malvern in about three and a half, four hours. That's a nice afternoon. It is. It really is. And while you're floating that, keep an eye out for bald eagles. Yes. In fact, about two, three weeks ago, and we've looked for them every weekend since, but we had two bald eagles that flew over us. One was hanging out in a tree, and one just kept doing loops around us, and it's just awe-inspiring. They really are spectacular to see. Yeah, you can see them around Carpenter Dam. You can see them around Garvin Woodland Gardens, around Energy Park. Um, I'm sure you can see them lots of places, but that tends to be where people will stop and be looking at other things and just happen to glance up and be like, wow. As far as the, the flows at the dams or the lake levels for either Catherine or Lake Hamilton, You don't see any big things coming unless we get some unexpected rainfalls after we record this podcast. Correct. Uh, For those of you that might remember the squall line that came through last week, we were able to kind of predict it was coming, and we will lower the lakes an inch or two to be able to handle the inflow. Lakes Hamilton and Catherine aren't intended to hold water. We're considered constant-level lakes, uh, unlike Lake Washita that is part of its job is to hold back floodwaters. And so rather than, you know, 
any water that comes into the lakes has to be passed out. But if we're able to predict it a little bit, lower the lake a little bit so that it's not recognizable to boaters and people along the along the lakes themselves, it really helps a lot to be able to absorb some of that rainfall without having to send it, you know, down the river. And as we record this podcast, of course, we're just we'll be just a few days away from the big Fourth of July holidays, and of course there'll be fireworks on Lake Hamilton on 4th of July night put on by Visit Hot Springs. We talked about that earlier in the podcast, but probably a good word about extra caution as you're leaving the fireworks on your boat. Yes, definitely. Not only going to, but but especially leaving. You know, obviously it's nighttime. You've had a lot of people out there for a while watching the fireworks and might have a, a little bit of distraction going on. Definitely you need to be aware of all the different boats in your area. Make sure to keep your speeds down and, you know, wear your life jackets. I've been completely impressed at all of the kids that I've been seeing this year wearing their life jackets. But don't forget, as adults, we can wear them too and set a great example for people. And over the 4th of July, you can bet the Sheriff's Department will be out there helping you remember to make sure you have a life jacket on and the Coast Guard Auxiliary as well. That's exactly what I was going to say. We are lucky in that we do have a Coast Guard Auxiliary Depot here, and they are very helpful for reminding people what some of the laws are. Again, thanks. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, give us a review, follow us on Twitter at HS This Week. Until our next episode, we hope you enjoy Hot Springs as much as we do.